man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Wednesday edition of the PFT PM Podcast, a day away from week one of the preseason. We've had one preseason game. It all gets started on Thursday night. And look, the preseason is what it is. Glorified practice, full pads, full price, extra full price at IG Field in Winnipeg. 191.50 Canadian, that's 143.70 American for the Packers Raiders preseason game to be played there in 15 days. 8,944 tickets sold. I'm surprised that many have sold at that price. The preseason is just kind of there. It's a necessary evil. It helps get players ready. It helps get teams ready. It helps get the league ready. It helps get officials ready. It helps get Al Riveron ready. It helps flesh out some of the rule changes that may need to be changed, even if they aren't changed. Remember that last year with the helmet rule? They issued the press release after two weeks. We haven't changed the rule. Here's how we've changed the rule. All eyes will be on pass interference. Not so much if it's called and challenged, but if it's not called and a challenge is issued that it should have been called, that is going to be the key. That's the number one thing that I will be watching for, other than the nonstop hold your breath and let's hope no one gets injured. So let's get to it. There's not a ton of questions today, and I say in my in my mind I want to try, try to keep this to maybe a half hour, and you know that means it'll it'll only be an hour. The XFL sending out invitations to potential players. Every team is going to draft 70 guys. They're going to send them out in installments in order to reserve space for players who fail to make their teams cut to 53. So they're going to start laying the foundation now with some of these guys to see who will commit. But what they're going to do is target especially at the quarterback position, guys who get cut on August 31 from the rosters that drop from 90 to 53. You guys who are ready to play, ready to market the league. Now, of course, it's going to be four or five months until they actually do play, but at least you get them in shape coming out of an off-season program, training camp, preseason, ready to go. And I think the key is they want to get some names. Remember, you're either going to create stars or you're going to hire stars. And the problem is there aren't going to be any stars floating around after the roster's cut to 53. There may be some hard knock stars or other training camp stars that end up available, but it's not the highest quality possible. And I'll say what I've been saying all along about spring football. I don't think it's going to work. I'd like it to work. I don't think it's going to work. But they're moving closer and closer, giving us something to pay attention to that isn't NFL football. And that is the compilation of XFL rosters for the second inaugural season, 18 years after the first one. Colin Kaepernick has a video on social media saying he's still ready. The NFL's still not ready. I remember back when He settled his collusion grievance with the NFL and word eventually emerged as to how much he got. And and for me, really, the moment of realization that the NFL is no longer worried about giving this guy the cold shoulder, the news that the NFL didn't buy out his future employment rights. It would have been a much more significant settlement if they had secured an agreement that he would not seek or accept future employment from any NFL team. When I was told that the agreement didn't include that. I believe that he didn't get much, and I also believe that he's never getting another chance. I think the NFL's moved on. And now it's easier than it was two years ago to not sign him because he hasn't played in two years. The longer he doesn't play, the easier it is to continue to ignore Colin Kaepernick and even though I think that the reasons for him not being in the NFL are bogus and BS and it was a campaign of leaks aimed at getting people in the media to go along with the idea that 
he's not good enough, he never was very good, he's a vegan, he's this, he's that, he opted out of his contract. All that's bogus, but the passage of time and the ongoing stubborn refusal of the NFL to do business with him, it, 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 it would be more of a stunner if it ended now than the collective and collusive decision to stay away from Colin Kaepernick was as it unfolded in 2017. I saw earlier today, and we wrote about this at PFT, Kenny Stills, the Dolphins receiver, posted a tweet that points out the inability to reconcile Dolphins owner Stephen Ross's Rise Foundation aimed at fighting racism and promoting social justice in sports with Ross's decision to host a fundraiser for President Trump at 250 grand a pop. The response from the Dolphins was strange. Instead of Ross issuing a statement in his own name, someone from the Dolphins leaked on an unnamed basis to the South Florida Sun Sentinel this quote. They agree on some things and disagree on others. This is in reference to Stephen Ross and Donald Trump. Disagree on others, specifically on the rhetoric around race. With regards to race, Stephen's record on fighting racism speaks for itself. It is possible to support someone on the basis of some things and not agree with everything about them. I guess that is possible, but certain things aren't negotiable. Certain things shouldn't be negotiable. This isn't well, I agree with him on reducing taxes, but I disagree with him on spending increased millions and billions on the military. Or I agree with him on the importance of immigration reform. I disagree with him on whatever. I guess it would be helpful if I knew enough of the issues that I could make sound examples. But... If you're going to be committed to promoting racial justice, equality, and you disagree with someone's rhetoric around race, that that doesn't seem like one of the issues that you just say, well, I disagree with you on that. That's an issue that goes to the core of who you are. And this is the problem. I know, stick to sports, but I'm sorry. This has landed in the sports landscape. The owner of a sports team is hosting a big-ticket fundraiser for the President of the United States at a time when that sports owner is trying to paint himself as a champion of racial equality. There's a certain unintended transparency and candor in this quote that was given anonymously to the South Florida Sun Sentinel that Stephen Ross does realize there's a problem here. That is a rarity for a lot of the people who support the president. They just ignore or pretend that that troubling aspect of character doesn't exist or they'll fight you they'll argue with you i was thinking about this earlier today for the people who are strongly anti-trump and are constantly looking for something to point out life has to be exhausting but the flip side has to be even truer it has to be beyond exhausting to defend the things that are said and done the things that are the tweet yesterday about beto o'rourke Impossible to harmonize that with the teleprompter copy that was read on Monday. And look, I'm sorry. Some of my views may trickle out, but I think we all need to be honest about what we believe. And Stephen Ross is kind of honest about what he believes. He disagrees with Trump specifically on the rhetoric around race, but he's still a hell of a guy. I'm willing to overlook that apparently is the position of Stephen Ross. I'm willing to overlook it because he cut my taxes. I'm willing to overlook it because he supports policies that 
help me from a business standpoint. I'm willing to overlook it because he's got power and I crave access to it. I mean, ultimately, that's what it's all about. And it's going to be this way when there's a Democratic president. And it's going to be this way when there's another Republican president. And it's never going to end. The quest to keep power and or get power gets people to say and do some pretty stupid things. And it gets them to just hold their nose. And this just isn't a current president thing. It, it Every president... There's going to be things that certain people are going to disagree with, but they're just going to hold their nose and go with it because it is better to cozy up to power than to alienate power. And I just think it's all unfortunate. I just wish people were more honest with themselves and everyone else. And again, it's got to be exhausting. It wasn't exhausting watching Hard Knocks last night. It was boring. It really was. I expected so much more. I tried not to expect more. I should have known. I should have listened to the little voice that was telling me, there's no way John Gruden's going to let this be interesting. Not after what happened last year with Hugh Jackson and the Browns. There's no way. This thing is going to be so carefully crafted by Gruden. There's not going to be anything there. They basically should make him the executive producer. I guarantee you that his fingerprints were all over that. And that there was so much stuff in that one-hour episode or 47 minutes, whatever it was, just running out the clock. Just the more that they have Cleveland Farrell and Jonathan Abram on horseback in wine country, the more that they use a 19-year-old clip of John Madden talking about the seven-man sled, the more that they use snippets of Last Chance You because they had a guy in camp until he wasn't. And he was just gone. Like, they're talking this guy up, and then all of a sudden his Achilles is bothering him, then all of a sudden he missed treatment, and all of a sudden Gruden says, let's get rid of some of these guys that don't want to be here. And that's that. So, uh, it just was boring. The one thing I liked is that when they got rid of the guy from Last Chance U. They didn't show the meeting with him and John Gruden or him and Mike Mayock. You hardly saw any of Mayock. I think Mayock's made it clear. Hey, guys, look. It's like uh, the guy that played Kramer when they did the pilot the end of season four of Seinfeld, Tom Pepper and George Costanza. I think Mike Mayock's attitude is he's Tom Pepper and everyone else is George Costanza. I don't want any of you here. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want any of you here. I don't want you talking to me. I ain't talking to you. I know we all have a job to do. Let's just do our jobs and let's coexist without any interaction whatsoever, okay? I, I suddenly have no hopes for anything remotely interesting. Although I am somewhat interested to see how they'll deal with the Antonio Brown foot problem, feet problem, after last... I, I try to put myself in the position, if I didn't know anything about the reasons for the foot problem, or if I didn't know anything at all about the Raiders, and I just happen to have the show on, and there's this star player that they're talking about, and they keep referring to an issue with his feet, and like he can run, but he can't run too fast... And if he runs too fast, it's more of a problem. But he keeps running fast. He keeps making himself run fast, but it's a problem. He can't practice, but he did practice, and now he's not practicing. And there's something about his feet. And they don't tell me what it is. Like, is it bunions? Is it an ingrown toenail? What is it? Another example of how Hard Knocks isn't a reality show. It isn't journalism. Hard Knocks is an infomercial, folks. And I guess it's better than nothing. NFL Films is the NFL. Just like NFL Network and NFL.com are the NFL. They are showing you not what is really happening. They are showing you what they want to show you. It's not reality. It's unreality. It's infomercial. Similar to what happens with the games. They get paid a lot of money for an infomercial. HBO's paying them money 
and the NFL produces in conjunction with HBO a one-hour infomercial. And there's kind of an irony to all of this. I don't know that irony is the right word. I never know if irony is the right word. But it's unusual because HBO has that journalism show, Real Sports, very independent, says what needs to be said. And then directly in cahoots with the in-house propaganda machine, right? NFL Films isn't there to make the NFL or its teams look bad. It's there to make them look good. NFL Films was the pre-Madden indoctrination of America's youth. It, it worked on me. Back in the days of three channels. NFL Game of the Week, narrated by Harry Callis. Sometimes you got John Facenda. The little NFL film shows, the bloopers. Slow motion football spinning in the air. NFL Films, I think, is as responsible for the growth of the NFL than anything. It's more responsible than anything. In the 70s, mainly the 70s, by the time the 80s rolled around, that's when NFL Films started to, I think, lose some of its significance because there were so many other options, so many other things to watch. It wasn't a dramatic loss. They were still very influential. But 70s, 80s, into the 90s, the VHS tapes, the things that when you see now, the titles and the content, it's just jarring. Embracing the violence and the hits. I think NFL Films has a lot to do with what the NFL currently is. So let's not pretend that it's anything that's independent. Let's not pretend that it's anything that is neutral. And let's not pretend that Hard Knocks is ever reality. If someone was doing a true reality series, a documentary produced by a completely independent entity that was able to produce and edit every episode without any input from the team, and they were in Green Bay. It'd be a hell of a story there. And look, it's that political tribalism that infects people's fandom because Packers fans will plug their ears and shout, not listening, nothing to see here. You're making too much of it. Why are you so obsessed? The real import of what Aaron Rodgers said yesterday about the joint practices with the Texans. When he criticizes the fact that they're having the joint practices, and more importantly, when he criticizes the specific drills that they did for safety reasons, he's criticizing his head coach. I don't think doing live special team drills is very smart, Rogers said. I think the NFL Players Association is going to look at that for sure. The kickoff, especially, is one of the most dangerous plays in football, and that's why they've tweaked different things over the years. Close to a live kickoff drill, I don't think, is the best use of a joint practice. He's blowing the whistle. Some would say he's snitching on his coach. You think you think LaFleur is happy about that? You think Matt LaFleur, when he saw those quotes, smiled and nodded and said, yeah, that's my quarterback. That's what I want him to do. Or do you think he saw it and he thought, son of a bitch. What is this guy doing? Oh, this is, this is just great. It's bad enough that we got this public dispute over his ability to change plays at the line of scrimmage, and I think that was a mistake for the team to let that become a public issue. Now he's calling out me. It's a direct shot at authority, and the ultimate authority when it comes to when, how, and where they practice resides with the coach. The coach wanted to do joint practices. The coach authorized special teams drills, kickoff drills that were close to live. When Rodgers criticizes that, he criticizes the coach. And I guarantee you that Rodgers is smart enough to know that. This isn't one of those things where, after the fact, somebody went to him and said, you know, Aaron, those things you said about the kickoff drills, that was kind of insulting to the coach. Did you not realize that that was going to be a problem? No. 
He knew. Here's the thing. And this is what I respect. They're not going to do anything to him and he knows it. He's the most powerful guy in Green Bay. They're not going to bench him. They're not going to trade him. They're not going to cut him. They're not going to do anything to him. Now, the moment they think he's slipping, he's gone. But that was the case anyway. They're not going to keep paying him all that money if he's not living up to it. Now, they'll do it probably more happily now. Their attitude is going to be, thank God, this guy's out of here. But this isn't healthy. This is not healthy. And we'll see if he becomes more emboldened to keep doing it. And to do it more often. And he'll probably disagree with that take. See, he wants to be critical without being perceived as being critical. He wants to get his message out there, but he doesn't want anyone to notice or say, you know what you're doing there, pal? You're criticizing your head coach. But, and I don't even think that this is all that controversial of a take. He's criticizing his head coach. By criticizing the way that his head coach chooses to have practices, he's criticizing his head coach. Looking to see if there's anything else worth getting into before I answer your questions, whatever they may be. Lots of stories about who's starting, who's playing, particularly at quarterback in the preseason opener. And I think that it is important for some of these guys to get some time on the field in the preseason. You just want to strike the right balance. You don't want to put your guys at risk, but you also don't want them to be at enhanced risk when the time comes to play the games that count. Tough call, tough decision that every coach has to make. Ultimately, the goal is to get your guys ready. All right, hope you guys are ready for some questions from the PFTPM policy and my answers. First one, we talk about teams taking a stand against players to avoid setting a precedent and lines of players forcing their preferred outcome. Why aren't team executives held to their words? For example, Stephen Jones saying that Todd Gurley's deal is the starting point for Zeke, or he's the straw that serves our drink. Well, they are held to their words. They're held to their words within the confines of the negotiation. Do you think Rocky Arsenault, Ezekiel Elliott's agent, isn't saying to Stephen Jones or the Cowboys, you've already said Todd Gurley's a starting point. You've said he's the straw that stirs the drink. See, this is the genius of Ezekiel Elliott not taking a stand until the eve of training camp. The Cowboys said things back during the spring and summer that they never would have said if they knew there was a problem. If Elliott had stayed away from the offseason program and the Cowboys thought we're never going to get away with our desire to not sign this guy to a new contract until after this season, Stephen Jones never would have said the things he said. That's the brilliance of that approach. Because Stephen Jones painted himself into a corner. And he can try all he wants to paint himself out of it now. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Basic negotiating. Once you cross a bridge, it is almost impossible to uncross that bridge. PFTPM policy, have you heard anything new about Trent Williams' holdout in Washington? Which teams are interested in trading for him and which teams should be interested? Any educated guesses on what they get back or how this whole thing plays out? Here's my educated guess on how this plays out. My educated guess is Washington's going to find a way to screw it up. I'm confident in one thing. They will screw it up. And I remember last week when there was a report that they were talking about trading. And I thought, hey, maybe they won't screw it up. And then the next day, now nah, we'll just wait for the pressure of the fines to get him to come back. They're going to screw it up. They're going to misread the market. They're going to bungle the negotiation. They're going to screw this thing up. They're going to screw it up for all parties. For Williams, for themselves, and for whoever out there could have traded for him. They're going to screw it up. That's my prediction. It will be screwed up. It already is screwed up. End result will be screwed up. This one comes from Carl. And I can't make out anything other than Carl. Wear socks, that is all. I don't get it. Leapers 500, I was surprised to hear you say in the extremely unlikely event that Tom Brady becomes a free agent, the Broncos wouldn't want him. Isn't that Elway's MO, grab a great veteran? Did I say the Broncos wouldn't want him? I guess I was going through team by team. I don't know, maybe the Broncos would. 
Would the Broncos want Tom Brady? Would Tom Brady want the Broncos? There are plenty of teams out there that will want Tom Brady. The question is, who will he want if he goes to play somewhere else? And now that we've had some time to really digest what happened over the weekend and to adjust from what was initially being sold to the media and the fans that there is a longer-term arrangement in place between Tom Brady and the Patriots, here's the reality. They wanted to set this up so a decision will be made quickly after the season ends on whether or not Tom Brady is going to play next year with the Patriots and whether or not the Patriots are going to have him play for them. This is sort of like what happened in 2008 with the Packers, but it goes both ways. In 2008, the Packers pressed Brett Favre for a quick decision, knowing that he would say, well, if you need a decision now, I'll just retire. That's what they wanted. This is a two-way street. Both sides are going to be under pressure to make a decision. Brady's going to have to make a decision based upon how he feels, what he wants, whether he thinks he can do it at age 43, which is what he'll be next August. And the Patriots are going to make a decision based upon whether or not they think they can still get it done with him. And by getting it done early, Brady, if he chooses to leave, will have maximum options. The Patriots, if they choose to move on, will have maximum options. And both sides are going to have to choose to continue. It could be that Brady wants to stay with the Patriots and the Patriots want to move on. It could be that the Patriots want Brady and Brady wants to move on. I think, though, the way it's going to work out, if they decide... It's not worth pushing it one more year, and this is the year Father Time is going to win at some point between February and February. I think they work out some sort of a deal where Brady ends up with some big job with the Patriots, a 1% piece of the team that we may never even know about. Although we would know about it because it would have to be approved by the other owners. So never mind. We'd eventually find out about Brady's ownership of the Patriots, partial ownership of the Patriots, because he would have to be vetted and approved by the league. Whatever it is, though, I think that the Crafts will come up with something that convinces him to to not play for someone else. If they decide they don't want him, he's going to have to finesse it because he may still want to play. If they don't want him to play, they're going to try to come up with something, some way, somehow, that he chooses not to go play for someone else. Leapers 500 was Stephen Ross, now the target of boycotts at his gyms and fitness studios because of his fundraising for the president. Is this going to make Ross trouble in Miami with the Dolphins? Seems unlikely as that fitness crowd, particularly LGBTQ folks who patronize, feel betrayed. I don't know that. Here's the thing. The football, two years ago, the owners deliberately chose the folks who would be more upset than happy about Colin Kaepernick being in the league and not the people who would be more happy than upset about Kaepernick being in the league. They did research, they had surveys, and they ultimately decided that the smart play from a business standpoint was to curry favor with the fans who were offended by Colin Kaepernick. And in this case... The way this Ross thing has played out between Ross and Kenny Stills, I don't think it's been handled in a way that's going to upset that core group of fans that the NFL seems to be currying to. Leapers 500, what do we make of training camp this year? Is there a story so far that you think is portentous for the season itself? Brady's voiding contract, Antonio Brown, and the saga of his cryogenic foot, Michael Thomas's payday. I don't know. There really hasn't been a theme yet. We haven't gotten to the preseason yet. And the one thing that I said today on PFT Live, and I don't want to jinx anybody, but there really hasn't been a rash of injuries that would significantly affect a team's hopes for the year. Like the A.J. Green thing, he's going to be gone for some of the regular season, but no team has lost a star player for the season yet. It always seems like there's one of those. And even if it doesn't happen during training camp or the preseason... I can remember some of those things happening week one, week two, where everything changes. The deck reshuffles. 97. I remember Jerry Rice was running a reverse. One of the last years they played the opening weekend on Labor Day weekend. 
And Warren Sapp like grabbed him by the face mask and while trying to tackle him tore his ACL. Out for the year. It seems like every year, week one or week two, there's one of those holy crap injuries. And it seems like they have... And again, I'm not trying to jinx anybody. I'm just pointing it out. We haven't had it yet. Sean Alvashar, what the F is wrong with Aaron Rodgers? Now, that's an example of somebody who is capable of looking objectively at the situation and has no or or has a rooting interest that would suggest creating as much turmoil as possible. I mean, you've got three camps here. You've got the Packers fan that wants to say nothing to see here, even when there's something to see here. You've got the anti-Packers fan that wants to make something out of nothing. And then you've got the folks in the middle who are capable of being truly objective. I'd like to think in this case, the people in the middle who are capable of truly being truly objective would agree that something's amiss. That by criticizing joint practices, criticizing the drills that happen at joint practices, Aaron Rodgers is criticizing his head coach. Venet, Virginia. Why hasn't the XFL signed Colin Kaepernick yet to be the face of the league? Well, because Colin Kaepernick wants too much money. That's what we heard with the AAF. That's what we heard with the XFL. $20 million. But you know what? I still think, and I haven't crunched the numbers here, I don't think anything was saving the AAF because they didn't have the funding, even though they lied to everybody that they did. With the XFL, that $20 million would be well spent. Well, you know what? By next January, January, February, whenever they get started, maybe it won't be. This past year, it would have been. And if you if you want him, you get him on board early. You get him on board quickly. You maximize the extent to which you market him. But I think from a dollars and cents standpoint, the XFL isn't ready to pay him what he'd want. Well, why does he want that much then? If he wants to play football, he shouldn't want that much. Well, that's a good question. There has been a theory that his financial expectations are, at some level, proof that he really doesn't want to play. Now, you could look at it and say it's proof he wants to play, but only on his own terms. It's proof that he values himself at a level far higher than anyone else does. But if you just want to play football, you take what you can get. And I don't know what the XFL would pay Colin Kaepernick. I'd like to think that at a certain level, they would want him. I don't think the XFL would be shunning him. But again, you never know how this one is going to play out. Vince McMahon owns it. His wife's a member of the Trump administration, administration, one of the few that hasn't left after two and a half years. Maybe there is an aversion. Maybe the XFL just doesn't want anything to do with him. The AAF didn't have the money, and the XFL is potentially mirroring the NFL on this issue. Regardless, they've managed to get people to buy the idea that he wants too much money. And there's never the, the thing about that's weird about this. Colin Kaepernick and the people close to him really don't do a good job of working the media to his benefit. Kaepernick doesn't do interviews. They're concerned about his ability to get his message across in a way and come across in a way that will be positive to what he's trying to do. And they don't leak in a way that is strategic and positive for the broader cause. And when Mark Garrigus talks, there's no reason to listen to him anymore. He's written so many checks about this thing that have never been honored that I just don't listen to him. I tune him out. I remember he was on CNN after the settlement was done, and he said, oh, you know, within a couple weeks, somebody's going to sign him. No, they weren't. No, they didn't. Tyler Finesse wants to know if I've tried out QB1 mode yet. I guess that's on the new Madden game. I know you usually do Ultimate Team, but it's really good. Yeah, I just want to focus on building up my Ultimate Team. I don't like getting distracted by other modes of Madden. Mario Diulio. What's your current expectation for the 2019 Browns? What percent chance does Baker have at winning MVP? I don't know what my expectation is. It's unfortunate that the expectations are so high for a team that hasn't done anything yet. They haven't been above 500 since 2007. They've been to the playoffs only one time since they returned to the league back in 1999, and that was 2002. They lost a shootout in Pittsburgh. I think it was Kelly Holcomb versus Tommy Maddox. 
something like 38, 33 or 38, 36 or 36, 33, something like that. Both teams were in the thirties. It's the kind of football game I like. I like more scoring, not too much. I don't like both teams in the forties or the fifties. I like both teams in the thirties. I definitely like something more than 13 to three. So I expect them to be in the mix for a playoff berth in December. Whether or not they turn that into a playoff berth remains to be seen. They should be good enough to get to the playoffs. I want to see what happens when adversity strikes, and it will. At some point, they will encounter adversity. I want to see what they will do and how they will respond and how Freddie Kitchens, who was on no one's watch list for head coaching candidacy a year ago, right place at the right time, be careful what you wish for. Now you're a head coach. How are you going to handle adversity? And I'm still troubled by that puff out your chest and rant about unnamed sources and inside information. I'm going to fire anybody that that blabs. First of all, you're not going to catch the people who blab. And second of all, you're really going to fire? You're really going to do that? Just fire, Just pack up your stuff and leave? So I'm concerned that Freddie Kitchens may be in over his head. And I think what the Browns did, they decided, you know what? We can hire pretty much anybody we want. Now, I think John Dorsey, the GM of the team, and this is where the political realities of a football organization come into play. I don't think John Dorsey wanted to be made less relevant or even irrelevant by the coach who was hired. So there are going to be certain candidates you just don't want. Remember, the Jets wanted Bill Cowher years ago, but Mike Tannenbaum was the GM, and Woody Johnson wasn't ready to fire Mike Tannenbaum, so they didn't pursue Bill Cowher. And in Cleveland, if John Dorsey's the guy, there may be coaches out there that would either want a lot of power coming in or with success, they would try to build more power. But I think what happens is if Freddie Kitchens doesn't get it done, at some point, Jimmy and D. Haslam will realize that with Baker Mayfield under contract and with Baker Mayfield likely to be there for the next 15 years, they'll be able to attract a high-level coach. And uh, it's on kitchens. And, and I just think that, that it's a tall order for a guy who did a great job as offensive coordinator last year. It's a tall order for him to just step right in, fulfill these expectations, avoid adversity. They can still lose to the Titans week one. How will the Browns fans feel if that happens? Sean Alvishar, should there be an XFL hard knocks? I don't know. Would, would anybody watch it? Who would produce it? It'd be smart. Anything the XFL could do to give real inside access, not the sanitized infomercial, but real inside access, I think that would be interesting. Dr. J144, could the NFL and the next CBA move to mostly incentive and performance-based contracts with injury guarantees? Guys who are out playing their contracts would get paid that way, and guys who aren't earning their money wouldn't. Seemed more fair to me. Yeah, it's more fair, especially for the guys who are coming into the league who can't really negotiate much of anything and are stuck with the financial figures that come their way but I don't know how that changes because you have to motivate the rank and file that already is in that already has theirs and has already gone through the rookie wage scale you know they're in what are what are we going to do when it comes to making it better for the new guys in the future do you really think a significant chunk of the players currently in the league are going to make any concessions relevant to them in order to help improve the pay scale for the guys who get into the league and to ensure that a guy like Ezekiel Elliott gets paid when he outperforms his contract. Any rookie, Patrick Mahomes, gets paid when he outperforms his contract. I just think that's hard to do. Recliner QB players can opt out of the NFLPA license agreement, but can they opt out of the union? No. They can't. Period. Cannot opt out of the union. I know there are certain right-to-work states where you can choose to not be part of the union but still pay the dues or something like that. I can't remember how that works. But the bottom line is, however it works in the NFL Players Association, it's mandatory. You can't say, I don't want to pay the dues and I don't want to be part of the union. Yellow Boy 1226, what's more likely week one? Rosen starts the game. Winston gets benched after third interception. Steelers beat the Patriots on banner night. 
87 penalty flags honored. Uh, I, uh, I, I Let's say the easiest of that, I think Rosen starts. Tree True, how will NFL ratings do this year? I think they'll be good. I think they'll be comparable to last year. They may be up a little bit because it's the 100th season. They should be they should be good. They should be improved. They're still digging out of the hole from 2016 and 2017, but I, I, I sense excitement for the season. And even though you probably should look at this year and think it's going to be the Patriots standing at the end of the day again, I it, it doesn't feel that there's an overwhelming sense that this is another Patriots coronation. I think there's just this quiet hope that they can't continue to do this and somebody else is going to rise up. And I think the fact that the Cowboys are expected to be pretty good, that helps too, because they have that huge following. Bored to death, do you find the interaction between Derek Carr and his teammates a little awkward? He can treat the rookies to dinner all he wants, but I think there's some kind of personality trait he doesn't have to truly win the team over. I I think that he's got a little bit of that Michael Scott where he's not as self-aware as he thinks he is and the things that he may say or do that he thinks are helpful really aren't and that's fine look there's a lot of people like that I just think that the higher the platform the higher the profile the more money you make and the more it looks like you're trying to be something that maybe you're not it becomes more obvious and I think ultimately that's what it comes down to You need to be committed to authenticity. Be who you are. Life is so much easier when you are just who you are. When you're trying to be somebody else, there's an awkwardness that creeps in. Just be who you are. And I feel like Derek Carr isn't being who he is. I feel like he's playing a role. And I do think he's extremely presumptuous. The moment that he said back during the offseason program, I'm going to be the quarterback of this team as long as I want to be, that's not how it works. Period. And I do think it was a little convenient that he was taking all the rookies out to dinner and paying for it. Is that something that would have happened if the Raiders weren't on hard knocks? Is that what would have happened? So I, you know, one of the reasons I'm paying close attention to it, I want to see how much they show of Derek Carr and whether they protect Derek Carr from himself. Because I'm still not convinced he's going to be with the team in 2020. It depends on how he plays in 2019. Mike likes dirt since a typical time on the market for homes above $20 million ranges from 180 days to over two years. Are we overblowing the Brady home listing? Michael Jordan had a $14 million house listed and for four plus years at one point. If we go by these metrics, Brady stays in New England until 45 for sure. Yeah, I, I don't dispute the concept that it takes a while to find somebody who's going to spend that kind of money on a house. you got to find somebody who's got the liquidity and or the credit rating to come up with $39.5 million. But I think it's significant that in the relative time frame of the past week or so, we've seen that Tom Brady's hired WME for off-field projects, that this contract has been done with the Patriots that ensures he'll be a free agent in March, and now Brady's home is on the market as football season is coming. He's going to be living there. Isn't it going to be weird? Somebody wants to come see the house on a Tuesday night. Oh, we got to clear out for a couple hours. They're coming to look at the house. I don't know how that works with houses like that. I assume you go look at a house like that. I don't think you just buy it sight unseen, although pretty good chance it's not a crap hole. I just think the fact that it's been placed on the market now, I don't think it's a coincidence that that all comes out now. Mike likes dirt. What does it mean for the market appeal of the show that I'd never watched Hard Knocks before this season and I loved episode one? I don't know. I didn't like it. I thought it was boring. Sando Shuffle, does Sims ever offer you to take a few puffs? No. He, I've never been around Sims when he's taken a few puffs. Sando Shuffle, who makes the Hall of Fame first, Antonio Brown or Heinz Ward? Well, I mean, Brown's still playing. And then he has to wait five years. There's not a real strong push for Hines to get in. I think he should. Super Bowl MVP, 10,000 receiving yards, or no, 1,000 catches. One of those two, not 10,000 receiving yards, 1,000 catches. He didn't have a huge per-catch average. Tough, hard-nosed, 
leader epitomizes the Steelers. I don't see why Hines shouldn't get in. Stephen Wise, 89, a coworker of mine, was recently selected to be a jury for a high-profile murder case. Would you mind sharing again your criteria of a good juror from a lawyer's perspective? I've shared it before. I've been doing this so many times, I can't remember what I've babbled about in the past. Now, a good juror in the sense of one juror, that really doesn't matter as much as a good jury. Because one of the things that gets overlooked the most when you're selecting a jury is the anticipation of how those folks are going to work together. You want to have leaders on the jury that you think will see the world your way. But you don't want to have too many because you don't want a personality conflict to break out or a turf battle to emerge because you've got a couple of different factions being led by two or three strong personalities. Ideally, you want at least one strong personality that you believe has the background, the mindset, all the things you've gleaned from your research. And trust me, a lot of research goes into this. But you want that one person that you believe is going to see it your way and be committed to letting the rest of the jurors know that and able to communicate it. And then you want the bulk of your jurors to be sheep, frankly. You want them to be people who will go along with whatever the leaders want. And ideally, you want them to come from a background, social, economic, etc., that is more likely to see things the way that you want them to see the case. That you want them, you know, they're going to be rooting for one side or the other early in the case. They say, hey, don't reach any decisions until you hear all the evidence and the jurors nod their heads. And then they immediately start subconsciously rooting for one side or the other. I've said this before. Turn on a football game with two teams you've never heard of. Within five minutes, if you continue to watch it, you're going to be rooting for one team or the other. You're not going to be a partial observer. You're going to have a preference. You want those jurors to prefer your side. But ultimately, when it's time to have the actual deliberation, you want the right mixture of leaders and followers. And you want leaders who are more likely to lead in your direction. It's not easy. And you have to envision how these folks are going to get along. And the longer the trial, the more they're together, even though they're not deliberating, they're around each other enough. You can sense body language. And and I'm sure there have been plenty of trials where members of the jury are thinking, oh God, I really do not want to go deliberate this case because I know that person is going to be a pain in my ass. So if, if, I, if I already have enough leaders, my ideal juror is somebody who will just show up, punch the clock, and ultimately agree with what the leaders say. If I don't have any leaders, I want somebody that I think is going to come to the table with the inherent sympathy for my client's position and is naturally going to be inclined to root for my cause. That's what you want. P- people really do believe justice is blind. It's not. It's not. Cases are won and lost based upon who the judge is, based upon whether it's state court or federal court, based upon who's on the jury. You could try the same case the exact same way, 10 different times in the same county, and get 10 different outcomes. It really is a crapshoot. And it's a fascinating process because what happens, you have one side presenting a version of of reality that is skewed in one direction. You have the other side presenting a version of reality that is skewed in the other direction. And the truth typically resides somewhere in the middle. Now, sometimes one side is telling exactly what happened. But in those cases, cooler heads typically prevail and the case settles. Most cases are like that old sitcom formula where Act one would entail one of the main characters giving a warped version of some interaction with one of the other characters, and it would be all played out over the top with the characters acting out of character to fit whatever this version of the events is being sold to the audience and the other characters as they try to figure out what actually happened. And then act two, the other character 
tells his or her version and it's warped and skewed the other way and then act three is what really happened that was a fairly common formula in the 70s i saw that at least two three times in different shows that's kind of what a trial is one side warped one way the other side warped the other way and the thinking is that when those two sides crash together the the jury is going to find the truth i don't know how reliable that is but that's kind of how it works. Not that uh, you care for all that detail, but you got it anyway. And as I said earlier, I want to keep it to a half hour. Of course, we're already up to almost an hour. One more question. Sergio D. Texas, no state income tax. California, 13.3% state income tax. Doesn't that factor into account with regards to a deal for Zeke, what Todd Gurley got, even taking into account that half the games are played outside of Texas? I mean, if I'm the Cowboys, that's a great question. If I'm the Cowboys, what I am going to do is I am going to have my accountants, and there surely are accountants all over the place in the Cowboys organization or otherwise in the Jones organization, who will take what Todd Gurley made last year and factor in days of service in other states and break it all down to what Todd Gurley actually took home. And then you you look at the Todd Gurley take-home pay and you work backward in Texas, and you factor in how many games are going to be played here, there, and wherever, and you got to pay the tax you pay a game, uh, play a game in in Green Bay. You got you got to pay Wisconsin tax for the for that day. You know, it's, that counts as a day of service. It becomes a pain in the ass. You got tax returns all over the the country. But there's a way to do it where you can work backward, where once they know what Todd Gurley took home, then Ezekiel Elliott can say, or, or the Cowboys can say to Ezekiel Elliott, okay, you're going to be in the same spot Todd Gurley is once all the taxes come out. So you're going to make as much as Todd Gurley, even if the gross is less than that. Now, you know what? The agents won't care. The agents don't like that because the agents get 3% of the gross. So they want to maximize the gross. They don't want to get into this whole... Now, now uh, some of them are sensitive to the fact that the player ends up with more in a state that is located... or in a, playing in a state where there is no income tax. But... When you start getting into that kind of a discussion, it's hard to sell it on the agent sometimes because the agent, look, the agent wants to do better from a gross value standpoint than Todd Gurley because the agent wants to be able to declare victory and, and use that to get future Todd Gurley's and Ezekiel Elliott's to choose that agent. That's just human nature. All right, that's it for today's PFTPM. We'll do one either Thursday or Friday. That's the new schedule until further notice. One on Monday, one on Tuesday or Wednesday, one on Thursday or Friday. And and once the season starts, it could get a little... It, it all depends on when I get home from Connecticut, if I can get one in on a Monday. And sometimes when I get home from Connecticut, I, I just don't feel like doing one. But uh, once the regular season starts, we'll have a different plan probably. For now, until the season starts Monday, then Tuesday or Wednesday... Thursday or Friday, if you cared. You probably didn't, but thanks for listening. If you made it this long, that means you've listened to the whole thing, so I thank you for that. We'll do another one later this week. Big Cat on Thursday's PFT Live. Sims is back on Friday. Profootballtalk.com, around the clock, always open. Preseason coming, and before you know it, it's going to be time to kick off season number 100 for the National Football League. We'll talk soon. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.